Happy New Year's, everyone. Thank you again for joining us to catch up on all that New Hampshire has to offer in terms of international news and connections. Once again, I am Tim Horgan, the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and your host of the Global in the Granite State podcast. I'm here to lead you through this crazy world we live in and help, hopefully, to make a little better sense of it. Today, we hear from two former ambassadors and gain some insights into the real foreign policy issues that face the country. We also get the opportunity to learn a little bit more about the pathway one New Hampshire citizen took to becoming an ambassador. If you're ready, here we go. Republican or Democrat or Independent, I think it's the most complicated, complex agenda we have faced in our lifetimes. That's Ambassador Nicholas Burns of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. You recently joined the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and its members at their annual fall forum. The ambassador shared his insights, opinions, and expertise on top international issues that will face the nation moving forward. When a lot of times my daughters who are younger say, this is the most challenging time in the history of the country. It's not. So what does the ambassador consider the biggest crisis the United States has ever faced? Right along with the American Revolution and the two world wars. The South's rebellion, and that's the way to think about it, against our union. That was the crisis of the history of the country. After laying some basic groundwork, the ambassador dove right into the challenges he sees as facing the nation. Give you a sense from one person's point of view of the big challenges that our generation and our kids are facing around the world. And really five trends that I think are now dominant globally that we Americans have to appreciate. And the first will not surprise you. It's all about the economy. Global trend line number two is this, and I think we all know this, but I thought I should say something about it. The balance of power globally is shifting very dramatically. Russia's not done yet. Don't underestimate Putin. He's the longest serving global leader. He's 20 years in power. He's cynical and he's brutal, but he's effective. Big issues like climate, there are 7.6 billion people in the world. Every single one of us is affected by climate. Cyber challenges, everything from bank accounts being invaded to the Russians running a cyber offensive against our 2016 elections. Speaking to a crowd of over 200 people, the ambassador dove deeper into these topics and provided further insights into why each of them factors into his top five of pressing issues. These are the highlights from this conversation. The length of this expansion since the dark days of 2008 and 2009 is unprecedented in recent economic history. Now, I've been to Claremont. I go there every year. So I know that not everyone is doing well, but across the country, this is an interesting time. It may be just about to change. Every economy, major economy in the world is in positive growth, but the U.S.-China trade war continues. I think President Trump deserves some credit. Let me say something nice about it as we start. He saw this massive problem of American job loss to China over the last 30 years. In essence, because China didn't play by the rules. They didn't play by the rules of the World Trade Organization. And they took advantage of the United States and a lot of other industrial economies. And really the first president to do something about it that is consequential has been President Trump. This is a warning sign. 
we are the two largest economies in the world by a country mile. And so when we continue to fight the reverberations are felt globally, that's going to be a problem for global growth. China's the major issue for the United States and the American worker and job loss in communities in New Hampshire. We want to contest China. We should have Europe on our side and Japan on our side and South Korea on our side and Canada and Mexico on our side, but we simultaneously sanctioned all of them. And Germany, which is the engine of growth in Europe, the largest economy in Europe, the biggest manufacturing country in the world next to China, the great export nation, it's flatlined. No economic growth. That's a warning sign. The warning signs are there. And it's inevitable in a capitalist global economy that economies rise and economies fall. When markets go up and markets go down, we've been on a high. Some people would say a sugar high from the tax cuts, these historic tax cuts, we're, we're, we're going to have to pay for them in the next 10 or 15 years. The warning signs are there that at some point, 2020, 2021, we're probably going to slide into a recession, my economist friends tell me. And so we just got to be cognizant of that because this dominates global politics. He also shared his thoughts on shifting global power. We've held most of the power in the world economic, political, military, for 500 years. If you think of the Portuguese Empire, the Span going back in centuries, the Spanish Empire, the Dutch Global Empire that really only came to an end at the close of the Second World War in places like Indonesia, the Napoleon's short-lived empire, Britain's 150-year run as the greatest power the world has ever known. And then sometime in the Second World War, the torch was passed to us. In the next 30 or to 40 years, most of that economic, manufacturing, political, diplomatic power is going to be here. By 2050, there will be five major global economies. The EU will still be a major global economy because of its vast size, but the other four are going to be China, the United States, Japan, and India. And by 2050, and certainly probably before that, the four strongest military powers in the world would be the United States, China, Japan, and India. We are powerful. We're very powerful. In absolute terms, we're the strongest country in the world. But in relative terms, a lot of countries are gaining on us. Illustrate that in 1950, when most of the world, Asia and Europe, was, had been destroyed by the Second World War, the United States had 50% of global GDP. 50% of all the activity in, in the world, economic, was the United States. We're back down to about 22% right now, which is where an economy of $17 trillion and 326 million Americans should be. We were used to being the king of the hill. We were used to organizing every coalition and telling a lot of countries what to do. I think those days are over when China's a mere peer, when the European Union in economic terms is close to us, when Russia still has nuclear weapons and a very opportunistic devious and cynical leader named Vladimir Putin. To finish up on his discussion about shifting global power, he left the audience with this thought. China's returning to global power. We use the word returning. If you read most articles, they talk about China, they think China's rising to power. Yeah, it's rising. But for 18 of the last 20 centuries, China's been the largest global economy. He also took some time to talk about the confrontational nature of the U.S.-China relationship. The United States has Japan, South Korea, and Australia as treaty allies. We have New Zealand, and we have the Philippines, and we have Thailand, 
and Singapore and Malaysia, just to name a few, as security partners. We have India, which is not aligned, uh, an ally of the United States, but now the second largest country in the world by population, aligning with us. Because everybody wants to limit China. Nobody wants to go to war with China, but limit China. The Chinese are trying to end the period of American military power in East Asia. It's too important that the leading democratic country maintain its military power here. Chinese are developing a blue water navy, ballistic missiles to push our U.S. carriers off the coast of Chinese border, cyber offenses against the American military. There's a real battle for military power, and you want to compete, but you don't want to collide. Here's an ironic thing that a lot of us can remember the Vietnam War. We go to Hanoi today. Here's what the Vietnamese say. We did fight you for 13 years, but we've been struggling against Chinese power for a thousand years. Please return your navy in Cambodia. And so right now, the battle's being fought by young researchers at universities. Chinese have one advantage. The PLA, the People's Liberation Army, can go into any Chinese tech company, Tencent or Alibaba, or any university and say to a PhD in engineering, you're working for us now. You're going to help us develop this military. And quite appropriately, Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, cannot go to Google or Amazon or uh, any other American tech company and say, you're working for us. Google has to decide on its own it's going to work for us. And that has put the Chinese probably in the lead in this battle for technology dominance. And there's one thing that we Americans, because we're a democratic society, we don't want to submit to an authoritarian society, and all it represents, we don't want to be number two 15 or 20 years from now, because then they dominate. That we have enough self-confidence in our, in our system, in our belief in democracy, that we're willing to say to the Chinese, we're going to live in peace with you, but we're going to defend democracy as you try to weaken it, as Russia tries to weaken it. And right now, I have to tell you, we're not in this battle. The ambassador also spoke about several international issues that will affect us all here and into the future. For the first time in human history, every single human being on Earth is being affected by climate. We're the only country that has a significant number of leaders in the country who don't believe in the science of the 1,300 global scientists. I'm an acceptor of the science. If we don't organize the world on climate, we're going to pay for it very soon. Our kids will, and our grandchildren will. To get off carbon by 2040 or 2050 is not too late. To use our engineering power to think about a clean energy future. President Obama and President George W. Bush, by the way, were all about that. President Bush was putting billions into research on this. Battery research, solar power, wind power. George W. from Midland, Texas. He understood it. We have to organize on human trafficking. That means we have to organize globally. And the U.S., because of our power, has to be part of it. To the North Koreans breaking into Sony's database and injuring Sony. To space-based wars built on cyber offenses, pandemics. We got really lucky with Ebola five years ago. Really <coughs> lucky that it didn't spread into Nigeria from Sierra Leone and Liberia and Guinea. If you've gone into Nigeria, there's 90 million people, then it races around the world and it reaches Manchester. So with all of these challenges here and around the world, what are some of the solutions? It means you can't just stay at home if you're a great power. You can't dig a moat around the country and build walls to separate ourselves from our neighbors 
and pull up the drawbridges and say it's 1819 again. We've had a bipartisan consensus where every Republican president since Eisenhower and every Democratic president since FDR and Truman has basically said, we need to leave. We need our military to be strong. We need to have alliances. What's American power based on? It's based on the fact that we have these East Asian allies. It's based on the fact that Canada and 28 European countries were in the NATO alliance with us. Our alliances magnify our power. Our alliances make us bigger and stronger, and it divides the work. As an example of this, he relayed the following conversation he had with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice the day after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And the next morning at 10 a.m. Brussels time, six-hour time difference, I called Condoleezza Rice, who was then the National Security Advisor. She'd been up all night. Of course, we've been attacked. We've lost 3,000 people. We're trying to figure out the response. I said, Condi, the, I'd worked for her before. I said, Condi, the Allies want to invoke Article 5. She said, go for it. I said, thank you. But I need the President's permission because when we invoke Article 5, that's a declaration of war against Al-Qaeda. She said, go for it. I said, but Connie, I really think it's an act of war. I personally feel that I need the president's, and she cut me off, she said, go for it. I said, I'll take that as a president's personal instruction. Well, go for it. And I was just about to hang up the phone and vote around the NATO table to go to war against Al-Qaeda, when she said one more thing. She said, it's good to have friends in the world. Wow. When the chips are down, when we've been attacked, 3,000 people dead, the Twin Towers fallen, the Pentagon attack, everybody came to our rescue. Everybody signed up. And they didn't flinch. Within an hour or two, we had everybody signed up. They all went into Afghanistan with us. They're still there today. The Germans, the French, the Dutch, the British, they've suffered a 1,000 combat deaths. He had the opportunity a little while ago to moderate a discussion with former Secretary Rice and asked her this question. I asked her the following question, what are you worried about? The question I thought I was asking was, are you worried about Kim Jong-un, North Korea, going nuclear, Iran, are you worried about Putin, what are you worried about? Now, Ms. Khabib, she said, we've lost our self-confidence. She's not an overt critic of President Trump. I don't think she was thinking about him. She was just saying, Somewhere along the way, we lost this faith that we've got something to give to the rest of the world, that we do have to lead. We don't have to fight every fight. The major battles are here at home. The major effort has to be here, but we have to be active in the world. And I have never forgotten that. We need to get our self-confidence back in both of our parties, all of us as citizens, to believe that America has something to offer the world. As is the case with many international discussions, the ambassador had this to ask of the audience. Have I thoroughly depressed you? <laughs> Fortunately, he had a few points of light to share. The world has lifted more people out of poverty in the last 40 years than any other previous time. I think the newspapers should be obligated to put this on the front page once a month just to make us feel that we're making progress. We're making progress here too. We have not eradicated the global disease since smallpox. And within two to three to four years, we will eradicate polio. We can do great things. HIV is now more a chronic illness where people can live. Lives, good lives, 
not a deadly illness because of the presence of antiretroviral drugs. That's the goodness of faith-based groups, of the U.S. government, of the EU, aid to people to purchase these medicines. The rise of women. It's not happening everywhere. It's probably not happening to any great extent, although limited in Saudi Arabia. It's not happening, unfortunately, there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world with 7.6 billion people. Not happening in wide swaths of the Muslim world. It's beginning to happen here. The young men in my class, as well as the young women, say this is the door we can push open and women can rise to true positions of leadership in our society. And the promise of technology always shows up in this poll. The ambassador finished his remarks by quoting Winston Churchill in 1943, speaking to a graduating class from Harvard Yard. You want to be great? You are now the greatest country. You have to have a sense of responsibility. Use the power wisely. Churchill knew the isolationist America of 1937, 38, 39, 40, 41. And he knew that the United States had this isolationist gene in its national DNA. The America First movement, by the way, titled expropriated by the president. The price of greatness is responsibility, and that's what he went on to say. Women cannot rise to be, in many ways, the leading community in the civilized world without being three things, involved in its problems, convulsed by its agonies, and inspired by its causes. We thank Ambassador Burns for taking the time to come and speak to the World Affairs Council members and supporters. We also want to thank the Harvard Kennedy Club of New Hampshire, as well as the Fulbright Association for supporting this wonderful event. To find out more about these and other great events, please check out our website at www.wacnh.org. New Hampshire has a long and interesting history of favored sons filling the roles of political diplomatic positions around the world. Since John Winnett was appointed ambassador to England by Franklin D. Roosevelt, the state has had at least nine ambassadors call New Hampshire home at the time of their selection. This includes Bow resident, Ambassador Dick Sweat, who was kind enough to share his time and insights with us. how someone becomes an ambassador? There certainly are a number of routes that a person can take to obtain one of these prestigious positions, whether through a career in the Foreign Service or being successful in other industries. It is certainly not easy to rise to one of these positions of power. I took the time to sit down with former ambassador to Denmark, Dick Sweat, to talk about his international experiences before, during, and after his time serving the vital interests of our nation. One might not think that architecture is a great jumping-off point for a future ambassador, but this is where our story begins, highlighting the fact that life can throw you several curveballs along the way. Well, I started out as an architect with a degree from Yale University and was designing high-rises on the West Coast when I got out of school in San Francisco, and very quickly came to feel very strongly that high-rises are not 
the most efficient and most appropriately utilized architectural structure in our world today. They're inhuman. They, of course, make a very big impression. And that's what developers really like about them, is that when you walk down the street and you see this 100-story structure, it is impressive. It is gargantuan, and it is appealing to that particular part of the ego. When you look at how it operates and what kind of impacts it has on the environment, it's not a very efficient or effective structure. And in that regard, I came to recognize that the ego statement is is less important than the economic or the um, ecological statement. So I started moving away from that. After becoming disillusioned with the architecture scene on the West Coast, Ambassador Sweat decided to move back to the East Coast and start a business with his father. Here, he was able to marry the two passions of his, design and environment, into one career. My father was starting to build what were at that time called purple machines, which were power plants that were utilizing renewable energy that had been fostered by and promoted by the Carter administration back in the late 70s and early 80s. Those power plants were primarily in the Northeast being driven by biomass, wood chips, natural gas, cogen, and combined cycle type technologies. And I came back to the East Coast with the intention of building a community around a wood-fired power plant that would supply electricity and heat to the community that surrounded it while purchasing its fuel from within a 40-mile radius. So it was all keeping the money very local. And the reason that was important is because when you spend a dollar on oil, for heating your home or for running your car for that matter, that dollar goes overseas almost entirely. Uh, yes, a little bit pays for the gas attendant and you know running the, the local station, but if you're purchasing it from a foreign oil company, it's gone. 90 cents of it is, is out of the community. If you're purchasing your fuel locally, not only is that money staying local, but it works from two to six times in producing other economic value, running a grocery store, keeping the lights on at the town hall. I mean, all of these things are generated from that income that is being produced and used in that local community. So the idea is if you can keep that expenditure or that economic activity as much local as possible, you end up creating more opportunity for local businesses to thrive. This idea of keeping economies local and building communities designed for local benefit will come in handy later as we look at the post-diplomatic career of the ambassador. So do keep this in mind. However, you may be asking yourself, how does a person interested in local economies in New Hampshire go on to become an ambassador to an important European country and ally? Well, here comes another one of those famous curveballs. When the economy tanked in the late 80s and I was basically left without a business, the project that we were working on, the contract was canceled because there was no reason for consuming the electricity for the utility. So they canceled the contract and I decided to do something less risky and get into politics in New Hampshire <laughs> at that time as a Democrat, which my parents thought I was crazy. I understood how the economics and the environmental aspects of these machines were favorable as opposed to the oil and natural gas facilities that were mainly being utilized at that time. And so that got me interested in the politics of things because I saw that the oil industry had absolutely control over 
uh, how energy was used in this country. After a couple of years in the U.S. House of Representatives, the ambassador threw his hat into the ring for a U.S. Senate seat in 1996. As history will recount, I ran for the Senate in 96 and was announced the victor by the four major networks mm -hmm. over the incumbent Senator Bob Smith here in New Hampshire. And after that all was done three or four hours before the polling booths closed, I woke up the next morning realizing that I had been defeated by a narrow margin and that the senator was elected to a second term. So I had a very exciting opportunity to talk to everyone in the cabinet of the president, as well as the president and the vice president, thinking that it was for celebration the night before. And then in the next several days, uh, it was a, a lot more painful conversations of, and condolences of, of a loss. However, one loss can turn into another gain down the road, which is exactly what happened to Ambassador Sweat. So when the president called me, he was gracious enough to ask what I was doing next and you know what were my life plans. I said, well, I was planning on being a senator and that didn't quite work out. And he suggested, well, maybe uh, you would enjoy being an ambassador. And I think part of that had been because when I was in Congress, I um, voted for the 1994 crime bill, which had in it an assault weapons ban. And that assault weapons ban was critical, I felt, to reducing the violence in our streets. Out of 792 assault weapons that were being manufactured at that time, this was going to touch 14 to 17 of them. And I felt that that was certainly not, not going to deprive anyone of their Second Amendment rights, but it was going to uh, make an important statement about what we needed to do about violence in our streets. So, as he was prepared to accept the position, what were the new ambassador's thoughts on the country of Denmark? An absolutely wonderful country that, that is small in size, but really punches above its weight because of its interest in international issues and the very high quality of life that it has been able to create for its citizens. He also felt quite at home upon his arrival to this country. Because of the fact that Denmark has an extremely high value placed on integrated design, whether you're talking about architecture or environmental or educational or legal design, all of these things are spoken about with a common voice, with an intent that they all touch and influence and therefore impact and, and promote one another. And the Danes have been able to create a wonderful society because of this kind of integrated look and view of, of how everything fits together. I asked the ambassador what his role was during his time in Denmark seen as how it is such a strong and stable partner for the United States. Well, strong ally and good global partner. I mean, uh, Denmark was the second country to recognize the United States. First was Morocco. Then we had a little problem with the Barbary pirates. So they were an inconsistent supporter. Denmark has been a consistent supporter from the very beginning, back in 1801 or, or some early time like that. What I did as an ambassador is similar to what other ambassadors do. And, and the easiest way to describe it is you're, you're really kind of like the mayor of the U.S. community in that country. So your first responsibility is, is looking after U.S. citizens abroad, particularly in the host countries where you're located. But beyond that, you're also the eyes, ears, and mouth of the administration in that country. And you work on issues that are important to both countries. And I felt that 
if you're going to have a productive diplomatic relationship, it really has to be a two-way street. So the first thing that I did was, as an architect, I always look for ways to build these structures of diplomatic relations. And so I looked for the four cornerstones of you know that edifice that I was going to build in which I would house my diplomatic career. And they were fairly standard in three of them, such as economics and trade, also uh, law enforcement, dealing with military and intelligence uh, activities. But then they started becoming more specific when you think about human rights, um, which was a very important issue. The Danes are always extremely good at looking after and protecting people's rights and speaking out for them. And then lastly, one that I called that was very particular to me, I called design diplomacy. During his time there, he focused his efforts on this idea of design diplomacy, similar to art or cultural diplomacy. He brought together industrial, environmental, commercial, and other design industry leaders to learn more about the integrated designs that Denmark has been working on for years, as well as how to look at how art and culture can shape political discussions. So, what does one do for their third act after an ambassadorship? Ambassador Sweat has built a company here in New Hampshire that is working to implement these integrated design systems that will benefit the environment as well as the local economies he spoke of before. The whole idea is that my partners and I, when we established the company back in 2009, it was established with the understanding that we could have positive impact on climate through economic development that created jobs. So that cleaning up the environment was not going to be always a burdensome responsibility that actually took money out of people's pockets. We believe that you can clean the environment up with existing technology and with new technology that's being developed and make money at it at the same time. So we're really most interested in creating jobs. We have been focusing on creating new communities in emerging economies. The basis for those new communities are created around a profit-driven macro enterprise activity. Typically, in emerging economies, that's agriculture, because you're dealing with skill set in the population that is pretty minimal. So you want people who can work in the fields. You want people who, once they are working in the fields, they can see that they can move up into ultimately the front office, if you will or that their children can ultimately move up into the front office. And so we're always very, very mindful of giving people that ability to see into the future. Because when you're working in an economy where you're living hand to mouth, either as a subsistence farmer or as you name it, a, you know, just a lowly uh, wage earner, uh, $2 a day or, or slightly above, it's very hard to project into the future finish out our discussion, I wanted to know what the ambassador was most excited about for the future of his company and the exciting nature of his work. Getting my first full community done, and I think it's going to be in uh, Sudan. I'm heading over in the month of January. We are not breaking ground yet, but but we are announcing the, the partnership between an American company, uh, my company, and the, the large Sudanese sugar company that we have convinced not to increase production in sugar, but rather to increase production in food securities such as sorghum and sunflower seed oil and, and the things that are basic staples 
that will go to the World Food Program in helping to feed the 857 million mouths that the World Food Program is responsible for feeding. Eight million of them are right around the Sudan area. 80 million are right around the East African area. And we want to show that this is something that can be produced locally. It can be produced cost-effectively, and, and it can begin to, to reduce the, the problems of starvation and, and malnourishment um, in the African population in an immediate uh, sense, at the same time creating jobs for the people in the local area. So you'll always, wherever I am, you're going to always find those two things coming hand in hand. They don't happen one without the other. Thank you again for listening to the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We really appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next month. Mm-hmm.